0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus-year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. I'm joined here this afternoon with Dr. Grace Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology, and though normally when you hear my voice at Mm. the front, we do not have Dr. Scott Redd. I do have Dr. Scott Redd here with us. And I've been granted permission to do the intro because (laughs) today we're going to be talking about uh, Satan and the various Old Testament and some New Testament texts that refer or seemingly refer to Satan. Uh, Obviously a tough topic for or tough texts, For many different uh, Mm -hmm. reasons. One, uh, of course, what do these texts actually say? What can we conclude theologically from them? Uh, What can we conclude metaphysically from them? And then I think the other reason these texts are tough is because of our kind of modern condition. We don't consider the supernatural, the demonic, as part of our, uh, the, the world in which we live, mm. uh, we're, we're materialists and secularists, even those of us that aren't materialists and secularists tend to skew our towards those kinds of answers and those kinds of ways of seeing uh, the world. So yeah. a couple of areas in which these things are tough. I'm going to throw it over to you, Dr. ren
1: Thanks, Tommy. Yeah, Good I, I uh, passing the passing the mantle to you. As the listeners may not know, we actually wear a mantle if if you're the the person doing the opening. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had to get it out of the storage closet yeah. and hand it over uh, to yeah.
0: Tommy. It was it was it was very kind. It's of you. heavy. Yeah, you, wear well, you wear it well though. <laughs> wear well.
1: Um, uh, yeah, we're gonna talk today. Focusing on, I mean, this, this, so our series has been, uh, as some listeners have pointed out, it's, it's, uh, had, had a variety of names, uh, yes. the two main ones being tough topics and or tough texts. Um, and so we've been looking at topics in general and even the Genesis one discussion was kind of a topic in general, even though we really did sit in that chapter of, yeah. of Genesis yeah. one.
0: There are other texts yeah. that deal with creation, but that's the key. That's but the key one.
1: Tough text just rolls off the it tongue, does. you know? It just it just lends itself to uh, to being the title of the series. So let's let's stick with that. And in our text that we'll be um, sort of circling around today, but of course delving into other areas too, will be Isaiah chapter fourteen. And so we're going to be sitting in Isaiah fourteen, but we'll use that, as I say, as a jumping off point to deal with some of these other issues. And, and the question here that arises. Is this okay? There's a couple. Uh there's a character in Isaiah 14 who is being judged, and Israel is invited to sing a taunt over this character, to, to sing uh, you know, kind of na 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 hey 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 goodbye <laughs> um to this character. And the question is: who is this character? Is this character a human king? Is this somebody else? And this character is given a name that uh, is translated in Latin into another title. And is this title important or representative of anything, particularly the Lucifer name slash title. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those issues, I, I teach this on in, in Prophets. Um, there's actually one night where we deal with two difficult texts in Isaiah, Isaiah seven and the Emmanuel child in Isaiah 14. And the Lucifer text, and if it just so happens that both of these come up on the same night, it's kind of like the night of shaking foundations in class, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, there's kind of like Blaise Pascal talks about you know, becoming a believer. He talks about his night of fire. Okay. I, I feel like it's the night yeah. of fire in the prophet's class.
0: And because we do these classes at night, when you, when you end on a cliffhanger, yeah. I just assume that all our students— or just go back and they just can't sleep. They're just tossing in there.
1: <laughs> so some actually have told me that they've had that experience. They go home and they wake up their spouse and say, wait a minute. What is the nature
0: of perseverance in Hebrews? I don't know anymore.
1: So um, this is the second of the tough texts of our night of fire in the prophets class. And just to give a little bit of context to Isaiah 14, again, where we're talking about It takes place in the middle of this larger genre section, which is clearly set apart from the rest of the book. And it's Isaiah 13 to 23, and it's made up of what is called the oracles against the nations. Okay, that's what we often title this section. Um, If you're reading Isaiah 12, he's going along talking about, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. He's talking about the restoration community for Israel. We end in Isaiah 12, 6 with, for great in your midst is the, and then here's Isaiah's catchphrase for the Lord, holy one of Israel. This is the one he uses, Mm -hmm. uh, comes out of his calling, right? Holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty, heaven and earth is filled with his glory. Um, He calls God the holy one of Israel. And then there's kind of a hard stop and I know if you're looking in the ESV, you see Judgment of Babylon, okay, is, is the title. Of course, that's not in the text. The text actually goes on and says, The oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah ben Amoz, Isaiah son of Amos, saw. And so that's telling you, the author's telling you, the compiler is telling you. We're now entering into a new section, and we have a series of these oracles, okay, that are going to continue from 13 to 23. This is common with prophets. If you go read Ezekiel, the middle of Ezekiel is framed around. The oracles against the nations. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you even look at the 12 minor prophets in the, in the Septuagint, not to get too heady on this, but Jonah, Obadiah, and Nahum are all are clumped in the middle, which are the th- three oracles against the nations, uh, the 12 minor oh, prophets. Oh, interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, Jeremiah's got him at the end in the Hebrew version, got him in the middle in the Greek version. Okay, so this is pretty, pretty interesting run-of-the-mill prophetic literature that you take a break in your sermons on calling israel to repentance and you remind them this is what the lord will do to the nations who are harassing you and, and and acting unjustly towards you so this is this is not the out of the ordinary part this is very common so here we have this oracle concerning babylon and it begins with a long oracle that actually continues on for a couple of chapters and then following that oracle we move on to the next Uh, which I think in this case is, who comes up next? Um, Philistia is the next generic, so that's that's at 1428. In that year King Ahaz died came this oracle, and then has it start, Rejoice not, O Philistia. Okay, so now we get a new oracle after that. So, in general, this is an oracle about these nations that are harassing God's people. Okay, now in that oracle... Okay, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, 3 begins with this. So we've had a little bit of a prose interlude in the oracle. And then the prophet comes back and says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt, right? So this is when the Lord has brought you back, O Israel, from, from exile. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay. How the oppressor has ceased, how insolent fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. Okay, so this is the beginning of that taunt. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is kind of common in the Old Testament. You see it a bit in the New as well. And it may kind of sound a little bit, you know, rough to our modern ears, but it's not if you watch college sports, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, you've seen this before. Um, the victory against the wicked... Right? The victory against the wicked has been so complete, the oppressor has put, been put down, the afflictor has been brought to an end, the abuser has been silenced, the, the victims have gone free, right? the captives have gone free. One of the aspects of their salvation, the grace and the benefit of receiving restoration, is that they get to then turn back and see how justice has been brought to the earth. Alright, now we can talk later later on about how justice and mercy get worked out in the New Testament. But that's the, that's the concept here, that's the conceit behind the passage. Okay, so I just want to read this for a little bit because I want us to remember what's going on. These are oracles against the nations that are meant to give encouragement to Israel, who is seeing her own children go into, into slavery and into captivity. Okay. So the Lord has broken the staff. uh, This is the the staff of the wicked. uh, This is just five, picking up where I just ended. So verse six, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The Cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter has come to us. Now, Isaiah has been using this, Metaphor pretty commonly that the nations slash the kings are like trees in a forest, and the king of Assyria slash Babylon is coming through, cutting down the trees, cutting down each one. Remember the stump of Jesse. Out of the stump of Jesse, a twig. Mm. Yeah, you know? the the line of David's been cut off. It's a stump, but in restoration, a twig will, a, a little a little mm. sprout will come out of the stump, right, and the and the line will be reestablished. So here we have the cedars of Lebanon, known of old for being ancient and grand, and what happens? They are now rejoicing because the woodcutter has has left, mm. the king of Babylon slash Assyria, who's been going through Mesopotamia and bringing judgment and upheaval. So they're rejoicing that this this imperial king has been brought low. Verse nine, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. Okay, this sounds like a Jonathan Edwards sermon, right? You know, you remember the, the, the spider hanging from the <laughs> web right. over hell, and the demons are stoking the fires of hell. Here, here you have it, but in this case, this is Sheol. This is the place of the dead in the Old Testament. And you have the kings, okay? They're referred to as the shades here, but it's the spirits of the kings who this king has killed, is now sort of making his bed for him and Sheol and beckoning him in, in, in in a, in a taunt. Yeah. But as we're going to see, the sheets are not, you know, they're not 700 count Egyptian cotton or whatever. I don't even know if that's good, Uh, but they're worms and maggots. Right? So what does it say? Sheol is, is beneath you is stirred up to meet you. When you come, it rouses the shades to greet you all who were leaders on the earth, lest we missed it. Mm -hmm. We're not sure who the shades are all who were leaders on the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings on the nations of the nations, all of them will answer you and say, You too have become as weak as we, you have become like us. Right? Mm-hmm. So again, kings of Babylon, Israel, Judah, I mean kings not Babylon, Lebanon, mm-hmm. uh Syria, elsewhere, they're rising up and saying, You've been laid low like us when you laid us low. Your pomp, verse eleven, is brought down to Shaol to the pit, and the sound of your harps Maggots are laid as your bed beneath you and worms are your covers. So I think at this point, it's pretty clear the king of Babylon, like the king of Philistia, the king of Cush, king of Egypt, all these kings. Uh, there's going to be an oracle against him, too. He's brought this grave international upheaval. Yeah. He's now going to be judged as he goes into Sheol. OK. Right at this point, there's no question who this is about. Yeah, I am just, just want to be clear in terms of history of history of interpretation. How you are fallen from heaven, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit, okay? So, of course, this is the part where it gets, in, in, in Christian interpretation, yep. where it gets a little sticky. There's th- this image of the day star, sun of the dawn. We don't know exactly what they're referring to here. It seems like this is one of those stars, if you think about it in the dawn, as the sun's coming up and the sky is getting lighter, you, know, you have the last of the stars in the sky. Just like in the evening, you have the first, you know, usually it's like Venus or something, Rise right. the first star on the horizon that you can see. You have the last star of the sky. And the idea being here, kind of like, is, is the star going to take the day? Will, will, the, will the star mount over the heavens and, and persist, outshine the sun, as it were? And yet what happens, like a lot of these stars due to the rotation of the Earth, as it kind of looks like it's ascending, it can then turn and go back down below the horizon, okay? Just because of the way you know, Earth's rotation and revolutions work. Okay. So this is something that, by the way, you might go, well, how do we know they're paying attention to this? Because like sailors and yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Israel, you know, Israelite people, they didn't have a lot to look at. And, and they're pay, paying attention to a lot of what's going on in nature around them. And those become the images that they use. They don't right? have TikTok. Yeah, they don't have TikTok. They don't have TV. Yeah. I, as I, I tell our students, for most of human history, the sky is your TV. Yeah. And you're just, that's the only thing that's changing. You probably only know 50 people over the course of your life. You live in the same village, but the sky's always different. Good times. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> so you're paying attention to it. Okay. So what do you have here? You have this King. He, he he says he'll be greater than even God in heaven, but he too has brought love down to Sheol where the shades of the Kings who he tortured are waiting for him.
0: It, it does kind of remind me of Daniel uh, and yeah. Nebuchadnezzar with right. the, exactly. you know, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm look how great my kingdom is. And of course, right this is precisely the moment god humbles him makes him him like the animals exactly exactly um it's it's a lot
1: like sennacherib Mm -hmm. okay um sennacherib 2 comes in and as sennacherib is approaching jerusalem the the kind of prophetic tension there is he could take it he might he might he might overwhelm it but then two things happen uh hezekiah offers a righteous prayer And Sennacherib overstates his case, you know, when he comes in, he first says, don't you know, the Lord is using me to judge you? And he's not wrong. That's the thing. He's not wrong. This is what Habakkuk is about too. And and Ezekiel, how God uses these imperial kings to bring judgment. Sennacherib says, don't you know, God's using me to bring judgment on you. But then because he is a pagan king at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. he can't, he can't leave it there. And he says, who were the gods of the other lands who I conquered? Yeah. Do you think the Lord will protect you when I conquered the gods of uh, you know Arpad and the Hefervium? Yeah, right, right. who, who do you think um, you know, who, who do you think your Lord is? And that's where Hezekiah goes back to Isaiah and says, "Did you hear what he said?" You know, and the Lord turns the tables on Sennacherib. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this idea of, by the way, the the fact that this is emblematic of these imperial kings who bring. Um, yes, under God's sovereignty, but they still bring judgment and suffering on the people of God and therefore have to pay for it. The The idea that, that that's who this is talking about, I think, is clearly seen in these kind of stories that we see with, with Sennacherib, with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and we've already seen kind of being worked out, people who set themselves up over and against God throughout redemptive history. Yeah,
0: and that language of like, you, you, you ascended on high, Mm -hmm. you know, which you, you would think, okay, only somebody who is a divine being could, could claim this kind of stuff. But the Persian Kings, they're doing that Mm. all over the place. I mean, they're always, I'm King of Kings. You know, they're, they're using language that we associate with divinity to talk about their own rule.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And they're calling themselves by the titles of the gods and the Kings that they conquer. Okay. That, that's common business by the way. Uh, to, to highlight again the fact that I think that this is, this is all talking about a Babylonian slash Assyrian king, uh, you keep going to the end of this, this chapter, you're in chapter 4 still, look down at verse 24. You notice how in verse 24 your, your, your uh, Bible editors probably put a, a title in there, it says an oracle concerning Assyria. That's what my Bible. That's what your Bible editors did. Notice that is not in the text. There's not a superscript that says an oracle came to me or an oracle concerning Assyria. Um, This oracle about Babylon smoothly moves Hmm. into talking about Assyria Mm in verse 25. So I would argue that he actually, because he's talking in the context of uh, of the Assyrian expansion, that he's using Assyria and Babylon. And you have to remember too, back in those days, people didn't sit around and say, Well, these are the Neo Assyrians who've replaced the old Assyrians and then later the Neo Babylonians will come on the scene. No one's talking that way back then. Assyria and Babylon are the great cities. It's the New York and, you know, Washington DC or Shanghai, you know, of the yep. ancient Near yeah. East. And if you're the king of Shanghai and you take over New York, you're gonna call yourself the king of New York. Right. Right.
0: And there's a, I think there's a typological thing that can go on there too yeah. with prophetic, you know, that Egypt is Babylon and Babylon is Egypt. You'll see them described right. similarly, like Hosea does that, Yeah, you
1: yeah. Know. We were talking before, you know, there, there are things that are satanic and there are things that are Babylonic. Right, right. Babylonic. You know, yeah. you, know there are th- you can, the, the forces of the world, or these, these kings become emblematic for the yeah. forces of the world. Obviously, right. by the time you get to John. In John's Revelation, you're going to see that a lot more fully. All right, so when you take this word day star and you translate it with Jerome into um, into Latin, you get the term lucum ferra is how he decided to go with it. Uh, that's how he translates morning star, lucum ferra. And you say that fast ten times, and it starts to sound like, in particularly if you don't know Latin, and mm-hmm. you just – hear your priest talking about this, um, when you're not reading the text yourself, you hear Lucifer, 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 Lucifer. Right. Lucifer. That must be Satan's name, right? That's his proper name. Satan is his title. Lucifer is his name. And the conceit being here, well, isn't that what, maybe this is telling us what Satan did. <clears throat> Sometime before you know the garden, Satan led a rebellion against God, said, oh, I'll place myself over the most high. And he is cast down to Sheol, because isn't Sheol really just hell after all? Yeah. Which, Sheol Old is hell. Yeah. yeah. Which in the Old Testament is not necessarily the case. Sheol can just be the pit, can just be the grave. So this idea of Lucifer being the name of Satan and this being actually Satan's origin story emerges. But you really have to read the text out of context to come to that conclusion. Now notice, by the way, I'm not saying that, hey, maybe they're not alighting on this idea that there are spiritual beings behind the kings. That's possible, right? And yeah, see, again, Daniel, yeah, Daniel the good, prince yeah, of the princes, Persia. Yeah. Princes of Persia are holding back Gabriel so he can't go to Greece right. and declare that Greece will be the next empire. So they're holding back kind of on behalf of their human king, their, their, you know, whatever they're who they're empowering. That's all possible. But notice, even in that case, we're not talking about Satan's origin story. Here, mm-hmm. right. Now, just to be clear, the there are passages that refer or closely associate uh, Satan with light, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Paul says he disguises himself as an angel, angel of light one, yeah. uh, in the Corinthians correspondence. You got Luke ten
0: eighteen, right? Which may be an allusion to this. This verse, although um, that is uh, debated, it's one of those things that kind of has gotten settled. In fact, I I was just looking at the ESV. um, The ESV footnote cites this verse, cites Isaiah fourteen as as the thing Jesus is alluding to when he says, um, "Where is it?" Uh, I said, "I," and he said to them, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." Um, There are some that language of from the heavens or thrown down from the heavens kind of has an Isaiah 14 vibe to it, but there's no, it's debated. And yeah,
1: yeah, the only thing is, out of heaven is the only continuity there. Yeah, so it's not a direct, direct citation. Yeah, Day, star, and lightning are not the same words. Right. Yeah. Um, and Jesus isn't Jesus responding to the apostles coming back saying, hey, look at the victory that we had over the demons. Right. So he right. seems to be talking about something that's going on there in the apostolic sending out, that yes. Satan is being... Conquered, right? In the apostolic mission,
0: and we we can talk about that, in from a New Testament perspective, too. Oh, yeah. But yeah. it doesn't relate, at least, to, to the origin story. To, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, that would be kind of coming out of nowhere. And I, and I think it probably does come to sort of higher medieval interpretive methods, where you're looking for all of the biblical stories to be um, allegories for spiritual events. Mm-hmm. But even there, even if you say that these are this is reflecting spiritual events, it's not talking about where Satan came from, right? No, nowhere does the text indicate this is some kind of historical memory that goes back to the founding of Satan.
0: And is that is that the kind of the primary point here? We're not saying that there is no Satan. Uh, we're not yeah. saying that there is no demonic but that we don't really the, these passages that we that we have put, put together you know yeah. in church history mm-hmm. we've kind of smashed them together to create an origin story that they shouldn't we shouldn't do that with them
1: yeah right i think i think people it's that it's the uh, that makes me remember that makes me think about x verse you know where you read a verse and the word red is in it and so you say hey that reminds me of christ's blood so this must be emblematic or allegorical, mm-hmm. for, oh. uh, allegorical for the blood of christ um, or in this case, I think what you have is some bad enemy being knocked out of heaven, light imagery is involved. right? And so you connect that all, and then you make it be about the main enemy that is Hasatan, right? right. The, the adversary. And, and you kind of create a mythology around that. I mean, John Calvin is, uh, is, is pretty abrupt on this issue. He, here's, here's a quote. Uh, where he's reflecting on this question of whether or not this character is Satan, that is Lucifer. He says this, The exposition of this passage, with which some have given, as if it referred to Satan, has arisen from neglect of ignorance. For the context plainly shows that these statements must be understood in reference to the king of the Babylonians. But when the passages of scripture are taken up at random and no attention is paid to the context, we need not wonder that mistakes of this kind frequently arise, yet it was an instance of very gross ignorance to imagine that Lucifer was the king of the devils and that this prophet gave him this name. But as these inventions have no probability whatsoever, let us pass them by as useless fables. Always always pastoral and <laughs> right. spirit, John Calvin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not
0: subtle. It's not subtle.
1: No, not subtle at all. So I, I think we can do this with a lot of these passages that seem to be referring back to sort of the origin yeah. story of saying mean, you got you've got the king of Tyre in Ezekiel twenty eight. I would argue the same thing is true there. This is talking about a king. And yes, there are spiritual entities around the king, but it's not talking about where Satan came from. But that leaves us with a question I'd like to invite you all into it a little bit. Um, I know I've been going on and on, but it's good stuff. What, what can we say about Satan? Because I, I think we are all going to have a strong affirmation of the existence yeah. of Satan. So what can we say about him? I think some people go, well, all I know of him is that he tried to lead a rebellion against heaven and was cast down with his angels, and now they rule as kind of like guerrilla warfare out of hell or something against the kingdom of God. What do we know about him?
0: Yeah, I mean, another passage that comes to mind that gives us a good deal of kind of the the narrative, Satan's story, Mm -hmm. and is sometimes used as a kind of biographical account of, Satan's fall, um, even as an origin story, is Revelation twelve. So, kind of halfway through that chapter, verse seven, war arose against with M- Michael and the dragon. The dragon is explicitly identified as Satan. Yep. And the result of that war, to no one's surprise, is that Satan is thrown down upon the earth. Uh, so there again, it seems like maybe you have this, you know, lightning from heaven, uh, rebel, you know, heavenly rebellion. Mm -hmm. Job, you know, Satan has heavenly access, so maybe there's this heavenly rebellion, and uh, Satan is thrown down, but the timeline doesn't work. It doesn't work as an origin story, actually, because if we back up into 12.1, a great sign appeared in the heaven. Who is the sign? What is the sign? It's it's the dragon and the woman, and the woman gives birth to a male child. Uh, Right. And the male child is caught up into heaven. I mean, this—the male child is clearly a, a reference to Jesus, his birth, mm-hmm. death, and resurrection. And then the dragon is thrown down. Right. And that's pretty consistent across the New Testament. We take all of the passages, many of which are challenging. First Peter three, uh, yeah. First Peter three, eighteen through twenty-two. Um, you know, all the passages that we have, and in fact, Luke ten. Yeah. Uh not an origin story. This is what happens at final judgment is Satan being thrown down. Uh so it, they are all consistently associated with the resurrection of Christ. Uh the the throwing mm-hmm. down of Satan,
2: which is an argument for amillennialism as a side note. But yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Another tough text. Another, yeah, tough, another topic. Tough, tough, yeah. tough topic. Yeah. yeah. Um but amillennialism yeah. is just the true position, but do you want to extrapolate no. in a little bit? No, no, that's all right. Okay, we'll, just we'll, we'll we'll save that for another Reminding
0: day. us that you're here. Yes, that's right. Okay. But <laughs> Yeah. So it's 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 not an origin story. Yeah. It is the it's Christus Victor. It's Amen. the resurrection of Christ is his coming resurrection is a is the completion of of the victory over Satan and his reign since Adam.
1: Yeah, I think Christians need to be okay with the fact that we don't know all the details of the spiritual realm yeah right um that that's not something that we we, we can we can say a lot about it but we don't know how everything worked uh you know, satan is he created absolutely is god's creation good yes is he in rebellion against the lord and culpable for it yes yeah right. so yeah. We, we can yeah. say there's gotta be there's a fall there somewhere
2: and somehow his sin pre-exists Prior to Adamson, right. Preceding Adamson, yeah. right.
1: If if depending, yeah, right. On how we identify him and how he's identified as the serpent in the garden, right. And the, the is he personal? I think we'd say yes. He's a person. Mm-hmm. This isn't like the dark side of the force. He's a liar. He's, he's a liar. He's a deceiver and right. the father of lies. Right. Um, I notice that wherever you see him showing up in the Bible, he's tempting and trying and accusing. Right. He's the accuser mm-hmm. of the brethren but he's tempting Jesus, he's tempting Job, he's proving, he's testing, Mm -hmm. right? And it's always, he always is asking permission. You know, in Job, he's going into the heavenly court, he's asking permission. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Satan is not, you know, he's not a guerrilla soldier underneath, you know, running around doing his own thing but yep. that he's always under the sovereignty of God, and yet he's culpable for that. Like yeah. like wickedness in humanity, by the way. humanity's all under the sovereignty of God, right. and yet we're culpable for the things that we do. And we'll be thrown in the lake of fire when justice is finally brought down on Satan, right? He'll be morally responsible for what he's done. Yeah,
0: and on the personal side of that, in, in Eden, whether the serpent is... Yeah. Satan or a demonic emissary. One of the things I encourage when we uh, students, when we reach problems like this, is to be exegetically minimalist. What can, what must we conclude? For is is our first question, and then what can we conclude is our second question. Yeah. And certainly, the serpent, you know, as Gray indicated, that's in an indication that the rebellion of the demonic forces was pri- pre- prior to the rebellion of Adam. And one of the things that Adam is doing. In submitting to the advice of uh, the serpent is ceding his rule yeah. to Satan and his forces. He should be a, Adam should be an emissary, uh, an ambassador of God, but Adam chooses to be an ambassador of Satan, mm-hmm. and as a result, cedes the 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 earth, Adam's kingly realm yeah. to the satanic. So th- yeah. we find frequently, especially in the New Testament, I think. And, and in the Old Testament as well. Uh, certainly, that's the case in Revelation 12. The earth is under satanic rule until, you know, obviously under yeah, God. This is important though, yeah. But until the Christ should come. And what Jesus does is end that rule and yeah. establish a new rule now from heaven and then someday. That's great. You know, on the earth.
1: And it seems, if we now go back to that Luke passage, it seems that it's Jesus' work and Jesus sending out of his apostles. That's right, that's right, So it's the apostolic mission going out that changes the cosmic equation.
0: Right, it reverses the power of polarity. And you get
1: this language right of Satan deceiving the nations and then no longer deceiving the nations. And and, and there's a shift that's happened. I mean, I think as Christians, we we can lay hold of that. We can be confident in that. There's a shift that's taken place. Now, the thing is, we've got to be careful. We don't know too many details. You know, I had a friend who was really into spiritual warfare type stuff and he had all these details right. that that yeah. kind of were drawn out of anywhere from spiritual modern spiritualism to medieval spiritualism yeah. and 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 uh you know views on witchcraft and things like that and we've got to be careful i mean the bible i think mark remember i think mark five is the long longest section we get on exorcisms where mm-hmm. jesus meets the man of the mm-hmm. the possessed man on the shore of the gadarenes you know it, you don't we just don't get that much information about it, but we can say the personal it's real, it's spiritual and the best resistance to, it seems to be following Christ's lead scripture. Yeah. Prayer, <laughs> fasting maybe, um, you know, but, but you know, these, uh, the, 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 the response is quite ordinary than the, the proper response to him is quite ordinary.
0: Absolutely. And Paul echoes that as well. I mean, we've got, um, Probably the the longest single exhortational discussion of what to do about the demonic forces is Ephesians 6, yeah. the armor of God passage. Um, we think of the armor of God as sort of like these are things that help us get sanctified. They help us mature and grow mm-hmm. in Christ. Well, y- yes, but... Uh specifically... The reason why Paul communicates it as armor is because the battle that we're fighting is against principalities and powers and the forces of darkness, and it, it, it's demonic. Mm-hmm. So what is the armor? How do we do our battle? Do we need, like, meteorite ore to mm-hmm. craft the magic sword? No, it's just ordinary stuff. It's faith and prayer and scripture right. and doing the doing of righteousness. These are just ordinary kinds of means of grace. Yeah. And what those means of grace do, you know, to your point in Luke 10, is they shift the power balance. That, that is how Christ wins wages and wins the war against the demonic. Yeah. Amen.
2: Bavinck actually has a whole chapter on angels. And G.C. Burkauer, in his monograph on sin, has um, his studies on sin, has a lengthy chapter on Satan and the demonic realm. Um, which actually isn't very good. I would suggest um, the whole point of that section is basically to say that we cannot blame Satan for our sins, and it's a long 80-page section for that one particular point, and um, it's meandering. It's not the most helpful uh, text. But I think what we can say overall, in terms of the dogmatic location of Satan and the function that he has in our systematic theology, is that it's to emphasize first of all that human sin is not original. Human sin is a contingent accidental intrusion to an otherwise good creation, right? Mm-hmm. And the satanic, original in the instance of... In the sense of, of when God created everything, God created everything good. And yep. so there was no... God is not the author of sin. And so when the serpent came to tempt Adam and Eve, it's, um, the serpent's function, and again, that dogmatic... the dogmatic function of Satan, is to say that Adam and Eve were good, and they had original righteousness, but they were beguiled and tempted by the serpent. And so sin came from the outside, uh, the outside of human existence and then they caved to Satan's temptation and therefore became culpable so again it was an accidental change it was a it was a ethical misdirection of their will and so on so the serpent indicates to us that God had created human beings again upright as Ecclesiastes 729 indicates for us mm-hmm. so anytime you have a denial of Satan um usually it's concomitant with a denial of the original righteousness of the human being if you deny that the serpent was real if you deny that adam and eve was tempted from the outside then you have to say that adam and eve's sin came from within came from within them and so god is the author of sin and schlarmacher famously was one of the um um authors in the the romantic tradition that actually argued that the serpent has no dogmatic use that this The scriptures hardly even talk about him, so we should just stop talking about Satan at all. And he came very close to basically saying and affirming, and some authors actually argue that he did affirm that God is the author of sin, that sin is not from the outside, but sin rather came from the original creation of Adam and Eve and themselves. Now, he's got a lot of justification for that. He's got an argument for why um, there was no fall in Adam and Eve. means that that they were actually created with original sinfulness. does not actually indicate that creation itself was bad, that creation itself was still good, despite the presence of the possibility of sin. Um, but we don't have to get into that.
1: Well, and I remember something, I mean, great, you can clean, clean this up if I'm not saying it correctly, but I remember hearing it said, you know, we can still say that God is the primary mover and at the same time say, but he is not the author of sin. Right. And, and the reason why we can do that is because there's a, you know, when we're talking about primary mover, first cause and secondary causes, that there's a variety of relationships that are available to us in understanding causation. Yeah. And one is agency.
2: Yeah.
1: One is authorship, but there's also permissiveness. Yeah. Know, there's a, there's a variety of other kinds of causation.
0: And the confession uses different language to yeah. talk about about that. You know, it uses uh, one set of language to, to talk about God. You know, making us, and it uses another and and saving us, and it uses another set of language to talk about. Tradition and yeah, yeah, actually
2: talks about permitting yeah. evil, for instance. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the older tradition, would, and I would agree with this, would say that evil is a privation of the good. And so, evil is not a substance because God created all things. Therefore, God created all substances. All positive existence is made by God. So, by definition, evil cannot have been made by God, but rather evil is an ethical uh, violation of a particular command. It's, it's an act of agency and not actually a positive thing. There's no thing in the physical world, no thing in creation where you can point to and say, this is sin, right? Yeah. So sin is always the privation of the good. So when, the how older, does...
1: older tradition, like, like Augustine, right? Augustine, like Augustine that's right, would right of privation
2: food, of the good. Yeah. And when we say privation, we don't just mean a negation, right? A privation is the absence of something that's supposed to be there, it's the mm-hmm. absence of righteousness. So when we say that you, you're sinful, we're not just saying that, you know, um, you lack height, because like you could be short and that's not sinful. That's a privation. That's not really a privation. Then That's a negation of height. Privation is the lack of something that's supposed to be there. So when we mm-hmm. say that you're blind, that's a, that's a privation because you were supposed to see, but now you're blind. In the same way, you were supposed to be righteous, but now you lack righteousness. So the privation of righteousness leads to a disposition toward evil. So don't think of privation just as a negation or an absence of something. Um, it's, it's rather a absence of something that is normatively supposed to be there.
0: Mhm. Let's go. So, we've lost a lot of our kind of mythology. We've lost some some of our um like the uh, you know, I think that this is something that's taught to us in kind of Sunday school class. Yeah. Um and actually when we think about hell, we think about Satan. The Bi- the Bible, as you said, doesn't give us all of those origin stories. It leaves a lot of that mysterious. So what should we do? What can, you know? Like you, like you asked Scott. What can we conclude about uh, the demonic? About about Satan? Is it one individual? Is there one king of uh, king of the demons, uh, or is that beyond, going beyond the text?
1: I don't know, I don't think so. <clears throat> I would say, I mean, we don't want to, de- we're not looking to demythologize as some part of some modernist project. Right. That's, I mean, that's the main thing, because you could hear this and go, oh, there, he, there they are again, like Schleiermacher, kind of ridding us of all of these mythological ideas. I'd say, lay hold of it. If you take the scripture and read it, uh, you know, read it um, in context, you're gonna have quite a rich imaginarium yeah. about yeah. the spiritual world. But don't create speculative genealogies, yeah, right. to Paul's language. <laughs> <Right>. Hierarchies <laughs> it, of angels. Yeah, and, don't create spe- – and, and and all the different words that you have to say in a particular way in order to get them to do things you want them to do in kind of a sympathetic magic type. The Bible doesn't like sympathetic magic, you know, where you, you go through yeah. rituals. You go through rituals to affect the spiritual realm by doing physical acts. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's not, that's not how the scripture works. That's not even – I mean – yeah the, even the sacraments which are often abused in such a way to make them into kind of magical
0: mm-hmm.
1: events mm-hmm. are not that in the way that they're discussed in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, so in other words, I mean, know your enemy, no know no, know, 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 know your imaginarium and don't add to it with extra stuff that's brought out of other worldviews, spiritual, you know spiritist worldviews or, Honestly, old and outdated ways of thinking. Like, a lot of this is coming out of medieval spiritualism, and it's just, you know, it's uh, it was encoded into doctrine, and for a lot of people, it just goes without saying, Lucifer is yeah. obviously Satan's first name, Yeah, and, you know,
0: and it's not. And you get a little of First Enoch. You get a little of Jewish mysticism there, too. A, yeah. a lot of those things, a lot of those kinds of um, material around the Bible that's not biblical yeah. kind of converge into that speculation about the demonic forces but one thing I mean on your point and, and one thing that's very clear is the victory of Christ over Amen. and yeah. and there we and there we can we see these pictures it's interesting to me that one of the clearest miracle miracles that we get are Jesus casting out of the demons mm-hmm. and it's really I, I I wonder about this because you don't get demonic possession in the Old Testament.
1: Yeah, you don't see it a lot. And,
0: right. and then it's just sort of everywhere mm-hmm. when Jesus and, and, and everybody treats it like, yeah, that's a thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's got a demon. We all know he's got a demon. He's had, had a demon since he was born. So you, you've got this sometime prior to Jesus uh, casting out demons, you get this uh, enough demon-possessed people to make it sort of normal. Yeah. and Jesus casts them out like it's nothing. Yeah, um, just with 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 words, and I think it's a real indication of the that things have changed. Yeah. Um, that that there is this maybe maybe there's this groundswell of demonic activity prior to the coming of the Messiah, this last gasp.
1: Well, um, I like I like the idea that as second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate, creation, all of creation, kind of shivers in response. Yeah, and these exactly. And things happen that just are out of the ordinary i mean and to the interesting thing about those just look at all those encounters jesus has with spirits unclean spirits yeah. demons
0: yeah.
1: it's interesting to james to james point the letter of james you know they know him
0: mm-hmm.
1: but they don't know him right they don't know him rightly yep. and so i was just teaching on you know luke 4 this past weekend and the demon possession story there and they call him son uh, what do they call him a uh, holy one of god which is a weird thing to yeah. call him. That's not a yeah. common Bible. So it was we just read Isaiah calls him Holy One of Israel. But Holy One of God is not that super common Mm-mm. phrase. And and I know in the, in the Man of the Gadarenes, they also call him something else. And there, there's, a, there's an argument to be made. I remember Al Malwini, my New Testament professor, pointing out that they don't quite, even when they're saying, why have you come to persecute us before the given time? They, they kind of use the wrong words. They, they use pagan words to talk about them, words mm-hmm. that are often used for Baal and Zeus and others. Mm-hmm. and even their worship is broken hmm. you know it's not true it's not true worship but they recognize him they know who he is
0: yeah.
1: so it's a there's a lot to be said but there's also we have to admit there's a lot of there's a lot of penumbra there's a lot of right. a lot of shadows there that right. we don't, we can't speak clearly about
2: and you have to be content with what scripture says you know yeah. scriptural brevity equals to epistemic modesty and mm. just because it is that's why, fact, Sweet.
0: that's why we have him here say it again <laughs>
2: All right. No, it was a good quote. That was a really good quote. I liked it.
0: It was so fast, though. We want you to slow down.
2: Scriptural modesty means sorry. Scriptural modesty leads to scriptural brevity. Leads to epistemic modesty. That's great. That's
0: That's
1: great. Yeah. (laughs) Now you're self-conscious.
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) We have to be content with the sufficiency of Scripture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And don't yeah don't go beyond it and course on the other side don't go don't go beneath the two. If scripture's clear about a thing, don't cut that thing out. Right. Yeah. Brothers, thanks for this conversation. I think we rightly handled this tough text about a tough topic. Yes. I noticed, by the way in uh, off off mic when we say tough text, it sounds like Wayne's world. It does. And when we say tough topic it sounds like hot pockets.
0: Hot pockets. It's a win either way.
1: <laughs> it's a win win. Or jingle. The jingles write themselves. <laughs> all right hey if you're interested in having more conversations about tough techs and tough topics uh we'd love to have you come sit in on a class at rts washington so check us out at rts.edu forward slash washington you can start that conversation there if you'd like to pose a question questions like this one Um, or a tough topic that you'd like us to address in the future, please go ahead and use the link in the show notes, and we'd love to connect with you. Thanks again for being with us. Look forward to being with you all next week. Until then, take care.
0: We have one more pre-show content that needs discussion, which is... We started i as I've been editing our t- our series topic is actually tough topics not tough text it's i mean we've we've done the tough text thing and mm. and now the jingle is tough text, but we started with tough topics
1: do we say tough topics? We did
0: say tough topics in the first episode, Ooh. and our previous uh producer who is more on the ball than the current producer, he texted me. <laughs> Huh. Is it tough text or is it tough topics? So we've got to decide right now. It's both. It's
2: well, we've been,
1: the thing is we've been doing tough topics. We've been doing tough topics. <laughs> so tough topics is the better now fit. Now we're about to switch to tough text. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. What we want okay. to. S- yeah. Tough. Maybe just assert. Just
0: tough things. Explain that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think we're going to go tough text because that's what's in the.
1: Tough text. T-
0: <laughs> that's We paid paid good money for that jingle. That's right. So we'll do tough texts, but it will also be tough topics. Yeah. Yeah. That have a textual basis. Fair enough. So for being accurate.